From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. When violence is used to um, police heteronormativity, right? When violence is used to police uh, uh, gender identity, right? That would fall within my definition of gender violence. Welcome to season nine of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Miami Law's Donna Coker takes a look at the movement to bring restorative justice to the intimate partnered violence space and how it has been impacted by recent movements around mass incarceration. Let's go to Charlton Copeland, Associate Dean for Intellectual Life, with the interview. Hi, I'm so excited to be here with my colleague, Donna Coker. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about her piece, Restorative Approaches to Intimate Partner Violence and Sexual Harm. This piece has uh, been published in the Ohio State Journal on Dispute Resolution. Um, I've I've been a fan of of Donna's work uh, since before I even met her in person. Um, And so... This was, again, a really great opportunity to engage her work. So, Donna, I have a a longish first question for you. Okay. If I gave a different title to this paper Hmm. after reading it, I think I'd call it From Gender Justice to Social Justice. Um, And I want to ask about that both in the article, in the trajectory of the movement against intimate partner violence and in your own scholarly work? Oh, that's a very great and provocative um, question. I expect no less from my um, wonderful colleague, Charlton. Um, I So from gender justice to social justice, I do think that the article traces that change in the larger or in the gender violence movement. So I'm going to come, I'm going to combine those two. Um, And that is to say that for quite some time, the, the feminist and feminist inspired uh, gender violence movement in the main, in the mainstream has um, traded in a certain kind of exceptionalism um, that was a product of the political and legal context in which the movement came about. Um, so what I mean by exceptionalism is that um, in the face of shrinking, dramatically shrinking uh, resources, uh, social resources, the um, whether beginning with the um, welfare reform movement and in the time of increasing punitive kinds of responses, whether on the welfare end um, or on the criminal end, as Dorothy Roberts describes so well. The opportunity for folks who were trying to do work on behalf of um, women who were experiencing intimate partner violence was to carve out exceptions. So that's the exceptionalism. So if you have welfare reform, then you should have an exception um, that allows women not to identify abusive men um, and to also get exceptions for some of the work requirements. So 
Um, And that's just one example of many. So in doing that, a political expediency one can understand, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in doing that, it traded then or reinforced then um, an idea that um, intimate partner violence existed in a way that was not deeply embedded in larger cultures of violence um, in which the state was... um, Implicit and, and complicit, rather, not implicit, complicit. Um, it um, it didn't allow for a, a, a very strong and robust kind of um, movement building that saw itself as uh, part of a larger racial justice movement, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't understand. It, it limited the scope um, of thinking, even thinking about what gender violence was by omitting, um, again, significant state violence. So it, it narrowed the scope into this very um, particular place of interpersonal violence, but interpersonal violence understood in, in this um, gendered, but not racialized gendered and not classed gendered kind of way. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm speaking in broad strokes. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are exceptions. Mm-hmm. So I do think that what we've seen in the last few years, and by that I mean really the last 10 years, um, is a move back to what might have been the 70s vision, at least of some, certainly um, the vision of um, women, early women of color leaders like Beth Ritchie, um, but also women on the left who's, who were making this critique from the beginning. We're seeing now this kind of um, broader scope, this broader understanding that we're part of or should be a part of a larger um, racial justice kind of reimagining um, and anti-oppression kind of reimagining. So when I talk about reimagining the movement to gender violence, that is indeed what I'm talking about, which takes us to the third part of your question about my trajectory. Mm-hmm. So I, so I want to, I want to pull that a little bit. I want to play with it because you, 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 you start off and I think it might be on page two or three early. You talk about mainstream feminists. So I want to embody the mainstream feminist for a second. And I want to say, what do you say to the mainstream feminist who says, and, 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 and correct me if I am misrepresenting the mainstream feminist, what would you say to the mainstream feminist who says, I understand this. I worry about the ways in which this feels like a move in the gender space that looks like all lives matter. That it that it that there's something particular about gender violence. There is something very particular about it and the move to a kind of broader anti-violence conversation risks losing that particularity, that specificity. Well, I think that that is a tension that is always true, not just true in this particular conversation, but generally true. There's always something gained when you see the similarities across movements, when you understand the the ways in which um, the socio-legal um, 
context is shaping similar kinds of experiences that cross uh, the, the ways in which we carve out by law and by action particular areas. Um, there's also something lost mm-hmm. when you when you start to do the broad thing. So I I would embrace that critique mm-hmm. to some degree. I think that what you're seeing is, I mean, it really comes out of, of course, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and and the work on intersectionality as that has grown and matured over time. I think what you're seeing is a, a movement that tries to be both and so that is coming in and focusing on the particularity particularities of gender, the gendered aspect of violence, but at the same time, pulling back and and um, looking at the ways in which, as you said, violence is um, plays out in so many across so many divides. The other thing, this is such an interesting question, Charlton. So the other thing too is to um, is to rethink what we mean, even when we say gender or gendered violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is to recognize the ways in which gender is operating in in violence. Um, in across the board. So, for example, when um, when the when violence is used to um, police um, um, heteronormativity, right? When violence is used to police uh, uh, gender um, identity, right? That would fall within my definition of gender violence. Mm-hmm. When violence is used to um, to police um, um, gender hierarchy, mm-hmm. when it's used in um, to reinforce patriarchy, which is always both racial and gendered, always, then um, you know, then that falls within my understanding of of gender violence. Mm-hmm. And that opens up many opportunities for uh, collective action that opens up not only theoretical, but it opens up opportunities for um, for for uh, joint kinds of um, advocacy as well. And it has implications for policy as well. So I again, this paper is so rich. There's a. There's a vision of the state in this paper mm-hmm. that is um, generously, uh, mildly negative, right? That is to say the state is a purveyor of violence, that, and, and this paper sort of recognizes that. How do you situate that next to so much else of what you say in the paper, that is to say, to think about the material needs that are real and that restorative justice practices are smart enough to sort of keep an eye on and keep at the forefront. What's the role of the state on that side of the ledger and how do we navigate around the state from which the movement seems to want some distance, but 
I imagine also wanting a, a robust welfare state that actually can provide the resources that Right. Right. So here I'm going to have to be careful and say, I don't know that I'm speaking for an entire movement. Um, right. Um, because in fact, there's a lot on this, on this in particular, there's a great deal of disagreement. Um, and that disagreement isn't new. That's mm -hmm. very old kind of disagreement, but you are right to, uh, pinpoint me as someone who really believes in, um, continuing engagement with the state. While I have been, um, well, I'm very supportive of what I'm going to call community based, mm -hmm. um, community based kinds of responses that really are, um, out, you know, I don't know if you can be outside the state, but that don't engage directly with state actors. Mm -hmm. Right. I think I think that those are important. I think they're critical. But but in terms of movement, I think. So that's practice. Right. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, of movement, I think that it is critical that we continue to make demands on the state and certainly the most significant demand in writ large is to um, shift money from the punitive kinds of responses, particularly the criminal justice system to other areas in which we so desperately need support um, to change the sum of the um, structures that maintain violence mm -hmm. in our communities. And, you know, so that's a demand I would never want to give up. So there is always a risk. Mm -hmm. And we know very well that there's a risk mm -hmm. in that engagement. But that's an engagement that I think we cannot um, fail to engage in. One of the things, again, to go back to the state, <clears throat> excuse me, is, and, I, and, and you sort of alluded to it just now, and it, it, it made me think about it even differently than the paper, but not differently, but it, it brought up, brought home what I thought the paper was trying to get at. This sense of the state as a source of legitimacy, that is to say, state recognition of violence means that it's understood as important and right. And, and, and the critique is in fact legitimate. There's something in the paper that sort of pushes it back against that. That is to say, look, um, the monopolization of the state as a source of legitimacy brings both promise, but also peril. And, and, and there's a kind of, uh, fracturing of that that the paper seems to to want to create in terms of this spaces in of legitimacy and sources of, of legitimacy oh wow such a such a good observation um so yes let let me give you an example mm -hmm. of of why um why I agree with that assessment of the way I'm thinking about this so the violence against women act Right. First passed in 1994, I believe. On the uh, on the one hand, recognizes domestic violence. Right. And by recognizing it creates the category. Right. Then it, it has a really critical naming function. Mm -hmm. um, it also um, provides some really important resources. Right. There's some money there for um, shelters. There's some money there for other other kinds of things. 
But it comes out of the Department of Justice. It is very, very much a criminal justice. It's part of the Omnicris, Omnibus Crime Bill. Um, it is laden throughout with criminal justice enforcing, encroaching, um, expanding, right? So, um, and um, it it doesn't, at least in its early iterations, include, for example, um, state violence. It doesn't include police violence. It doesn't, and it doesn't include um, shackling pregnant women in prisons. Um, there is a lot that's outside of that definition. And because of the funding stream and the, and the power of the federal naming, but let me emphasize the funding stream, um, it, it's, um, it, it means then that Responses to organizations that are trying to assist um, uh, survivors are not able to assist survivors that fit all those other kinds of categories. Right. So I I think that is exactly right. And I think that part of what we if I can use a collective here, what we are trying to do is to rebuild those kinds of connections with other movements that seek a similar kind of ob- objective. So I want to in the time that remains, I want to sort of take you back to the to to the. Uh, in some sense, to the objective of the paper It's to sort of talk about these. Moments of convergence and sometimes intentional, sometimes coincidental in terms of what brings the domestic violence movement to this particular place. What do you think are, what are the the risks to that movement going forward and the convergence that you, that you want to applaud? I, I take it. And, and, um, and and what are the next steps in 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 this movement's convergence? Well, there's a certain sort of hopefulness in that in the article that you just read, and it's maybe important to note that it came out what about a year ago. Um, I I I my hopefulness is a little tempered um, at this moment, as a, as I'm sure is true for many of us. Um, so I think that the 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 largest um one of the significant obstacles if you will one of the challenges is really the way in which the political climate seems to be um changing um and i i don't mean this in some universalist way i think that it's obviously a very complicated landscape mm-hmm. but i do think that there's more overt um Support. I mean, for a while, for this you know little brief moment, it seemed as there was as though there was some um, political convergence around some minor criminal justice reform. And of course, now we saw in the, in the recent election the the kind of trope of needing to get tough on crime reemerge and reemerge in a really quite significant way. Mm-hmm. And we see um, we see support for um, for authoritarianism. Um, so the all of which, of course, is um, a direct challenge to the ability to keep moving in, in this direction that I've been describing um, before this election. Let me give you a concrete example. So before this way before this election, um, I believe it was in Wisconsin, a shelter program that assisted um, survivors of intimate partner violence put up a Black Lives Matter sign on their 
on their yard. And um, the the local sheriff took offense at um, having a BLM sign on their yard. And the result, to make this a short story, the result was that they lost some funding. That story has been repeated around the country. There are a lot of um, coalition, state coalitions against domestic violence that have really taken, uh, taken a very strong racial justice stance, and they have play, paid a political cost. And that, I, what I can, am concerned right now is that that political cost is, will be steeper, will continue deepen and, and be steeper. Well, uh, I'm going to let that be the, the last word I um, to, to our audience. Again, this is... This this paper is rich. I, I I am floored by, I think, the ways in which and I think uh, uh, Donna Coker sort of raises this, that this is a kind of microcosm of. Of broader questions that repeat themselves in movements generally in 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 social justice movements generally. And I just want to thank you for for a really rich uh, paper. Um, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this season of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is sponsored by Miami Law's 57th Annual Heckerling Institute on Estate Planning, the nation's leading conference for estate planning professionals, January 9th through 13th in Orlando. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.